understand our role as occupational therapy practitioners makes a huge difference in how we show up for our clients. But many of the OT frameworks that I learned 10 years ago in OT school just have not stuck with me long term. But luckily, there are emerging theories of OT practice that are getting closer to capturing the care that we all aspire to deliver and just providing more useful frameworks to guide our clinical reasoning. So today on the podcast, we are going to dive into the core approach. If this approach is new to you, I think you'll find that it aligns with many of the trends that we've explored already in our episodes. And after we review a journal article about it, it is my pleasure to bring on our guest today, Brock Cook. Brock is an OT from Australia, which is where the core approach was born. And he does such a good job of stretching our thinking about this approach and making it applicable to practice. So let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into the core approach, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To earn CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, which is our evidence-based practice platform. It is $79 currently to join, and all you'll have to do is log into there at the end of this episode and take a five-question test to earn your certificate. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the four pillars of the core approach. And our second is that you will be able to recognize questions from the core framework that can be used to guide your clinical reasoning. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring Brock onto the podcast. The article that we are looking at is called Capabilities, Opportunities, Resources, and Environments, parentheses, core, colon, using the core approach for inclusive occupation-centered practice. It comes to us from the Australian Occupational Therapy Journal, and it was published in the year 2020. So the article opens by answering the question, why do we need a new occupation-centered inclusive framework? So as occupational therapists, it is our core belief that daily occupations have a profound impact on a person's well-being. And our profession's focus on daily occupations is our unique and valuable offering to our clients and to the healthcare system at large. But despite this core belief, the reality is that there are many barriers to using occupation in practice. And some of them that they mentioned in the article were the influence of biomedical systems, the discharge-focused nature of our settings, especially like acute care, the expectations of other health professionals, and this can even include fellow OTs, and then our own lack of knowledge around occupation-centered practice. The good news, though, is that there is a sort of renaissance, is the word that the article uses, that is occurring among OT scholars, And this renaissance is giving us frameworks to reclaim our focus on occupation and hopefully overcome some of the barriers that I just noted, which leads us to the core approach. 
So in the core approach, the word core is an acronym for the four main pillars of the approach, which are capabilities, opportunities, resources, and environments. The article states that the approach is a mechanism for OTs to understand their practice through an inclusive occupation-centric lens, and it encourages OTs to ask reflexive questions related to these four, quote-unquote, core areas of occupational therapy. The article doesn't go super in-depth to reflexive questions, so I wanted to side note just some additional reading that I did and highlight that reflexive questioning has like a very specific purpose that they're alluding to, and asking these types of questions are intended to help clients reflect on their own lives and belief systems, and with the specific intent of promoting self-healing and giving clients more ownership over their care plan as they chart their own path forward. I personally think that the core approach's focus on reflexive questioning is part of what makes it an inclusive framework because in it, we as practitioners are not just rubber stamping our own ideas and answers onto each client, but rather we're opening the door for the clients to find their own unique ways of healing. The article also helps us think about social inclusion as one of the end goals of occupational therapy and helps us think about that throughout the therapy process, again, using these reflexive questionings. And one more just big picture note, the author goes so far as to call this way of practice emancipatory practice because in addition to ensuring that our care is guided by the client's values, the questions really push us to question and challenge the systems that limit our clients. So I'm going to go ahead and read some of the questions from each of the four areas. I definitely want you to note that first, I adapted the language of each question to make it a little more client-friendly and just to simplify the questions a little bit. And also to note that these are just starting point questions for examining the four different areas. This is something that Brock and I will talk about. These questions are really just meant to serve as a starting point. So when we're thinking about the first area, the area of capabilities, some of the questions that the author suggests are, what do you need to be able to do? What do you value most in life? And what are you able to do and be? In opportunities, they suggest the question, how can we create circumstances so you can be the person you are working to be? Under resources, some suggested questions are, what resources do you need to be able to enable these capabilities? For example, personal, social, cultural, emotional, material, physical, spiritual, and or technological. And how can we help mobilize these resources? And lastly is environments. How do you feel your environment needs to change to support your capabilities and opportunities? So I do have one final note on this introduction to the core approach in that there is a lot to unpack in the verbiage of these questions, especially the word capabilities. This is a phrase we've actually talked about on the podcast before because there is such a robust body of work behind this word that really expands far beyond OT. There is an economist, Amartya Sen, and a philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who have both written extensively about it. And we actually talked about this term on episode 13 of our podcast, Moving Beyond Occupational Injustice. So I definitely recommend that episode as a companion to this one if you want to dig deeper into just the thinking behind why these specific words were used. 
Okay, so that was just our big picture, quick introduction to the core approach. And then the paper moves on to the purpose of this particular study. And the authors say that because the core approach is relatively new, they wanted to present three different case narratives from three different settings in Australia in order to better illustrate how it can be applied. The author's methods were that they presented these critical reflections in first-person narrative, and each narrative was provided by a practicing occupational therapist. The three narratives were then presented in full in the article. I'm going to stay super big picture and high level and let you go back and read the narratives that might be of particular interest to you. But just so you know what they are, the first was using the core approach in the national insurance scheme in Australia. And this therapist used the core approach as a reflective tool to check in with herself and ensure that her services were remaining true to the values and the aspirations of the individuals that she was helping. The second was in a state-funded mental health setting. And this therapist reflected that even though her setting was trying to be committed to providing patients capability enhancement and opportunities, there was just this base lack of resources that were made available to them that caused the patients to experience the setting as limiting and even as punitive at times, which is just a great example of how capabilities, opportunities, resources, environments all really do need to work together. And when you're missing one or two, you're just really not getting that full healing experience. And the last was a therapist who used the core approach to guide her thinking in rural community health. And she reflected how her unique environment really pushed her to think of resources in broader terms. And she found herself building partnerships with housing services, government agencies, charity organizations, sports and leisure clubs, etc. So she could really help mobilize the resources that her patients needed. So in the conclusion and discussion, the authors contested that, as illustrated by these case narratives, that when OTs foreground capabilities, opportunities, resources, and environments in their clinical reasoning, OT care looks very different than it does when we focus on strategies related to impairments. They say that through the core approach, we are pushed to critically engage systems, structures, and policies that either provide or limit resources or opportunities. And in this respect, the therapists must more fully embrace their role as an advocate or lobbyist. The authors concluded that this approach merits more research and lastly highlighted that while the approach is distinct, it is also intended to complement other occupation-centered models and frameworks, such as the participatory occupational justice framework, the occupational therapy interventions process model, and the Canadian model of client-centered enablement. Okay, I feel like That was a lot to take in. We went through it pretty fast. And that is just why I'm so excited to have Brock with us today to help us unpack this, slow it down, and talk about how this way of thinking could apply to your practice. So Brock Cook has been an occupational therapist for 10 years. He has experience working in acute mental health inpatient and with community mental health rehabilitation services. He has extensive experience delivering education on mental health using innovative approaches. And he currently works as an associate lecturer for James Cook University in Townsville, Australia. And he is the host of the Occupied podcast. 
I knew that I wanted to have Brock on this podcast because I know he spends so much time dialoguing with other OT thinkers and thinking really critically and big picture about occupational therapy. And he was actually the one who suggested the core approach to me as a really practical and useful way of thinking for us as occupational therapists. So without further ado, I will patch Brock into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Brock. It's great to have you. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this paper today. I love reading papers that really push me to think about justice in occupational therapy and occupation as justice. That's definitely been a theme on the podcast. And what I like about this is it pushes us to kind of operationalize how we do that, give us like set questions to incorporate justice into our work more. And I just can't wait to unpack all of this with you. Yeah, it's definitely, it's something that very much appealed to me because it's kind of like tying in a few of my different interest areas and then putting it all in one paper. So yeah, yeah, I'm very excited to delve into it with you. Absolutely. Before we go there, I really want to hear a little bit about your story. I actually don't know this. Okay. First, I'm going to give you a two-part question. How you found OT, and then if you could just paint us a picture of what you're doing now over there in Australia. Yeah, okay. So when I first went to uni, I was doing engineering. It's for whatever reason what I wanted to do forever. (laughs) And then when I actually finally got in and started studying it, I'm like, dude, there's way too much math in this. This isn't for me. And where I was living, uh, one of my mates I was living with at the time was studying OT. I'd never heard of it before. And the actual story is he was rather socially lubricated one day and he was playing with a sock puppet and I was like what the hell are you doing and he explained that he'd made it in class that day and I was like what the hell are you studying so he explained it to me well he explained it to me as best as he could at the time and I went away and did a bit of research and actually found out I had a family friend whose mum was an OT so I had a chat with her and went oh this all actually sounds pretty good. So yeah, it transferred into OT for the next semester and yeah, the rest is history, really. So that's all why I, I credit that <laughs> I was sock not puppet. expecting that story. <laughs> no, no one is. I credit the sock, the sock puppet's name is Monkey Broccoli and I credit Monkey Broccoli with why I'm in OT. So I actually have a photo of Monkey Broccoli somewhere. I found it years after. Oh my goodness. It is definitely a theme where people find OTs because they see like OTs doing their work and they're like drawn to it. I've just never heard the version of it where the OT is playing with the song. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, I've not heard anyone with a similar story. So I, I pride myself on its uniqueness. Yes. And then paint me just a little picture of how you got from, your sock puppet epiphany <laughs> to where you are now. <laughs> the yeah, speedy so, version of the story. So pretty much the whole way through my OT course. So it's a it's a bachelor, like an undergrad entry in Australia. So it was a Bachelor of Occupational Therapy. Pretty much the whole way through that, I was still sort of, I guess, thinking on that engineering train where I was going to go into like adaptive equipment, that kind of stuff. Mm. Got to my final year, did my placement in mental health and just absolutely fell in love with it. It was like, I don't want to work anywhere else. So I ended up working in mental health for a decade after I finished uni. And then an opportunity came up 
apply in various locations, but always in mental health. And then an opportunity came up to go back to the uni as a, as a lecturer. So took that opportunity in two, five years ago now. So, yeah, I've been at the uni for the last five years now, um, teaching all my bad habits to the next generation, I guess. Awesome. I love talking to OTs with a mental health background in their work. I also worked in a state-run inpatient psychiatric hospital, and that experience in the mental health setting was so informative to my own care. I wish more OTs could have experience like that. Yeah, it's it's something that's a lot more common over here than it is in the States, but it's something that I feel like a lot of the really core OT components and how we think and how we view things, I think, fit really well in mental health Mm -hmm. care. So, I mean, one, OT fits really well with mental health, but also that experience would carry over to everyone's other practice areas really well as well. Mm -hmm. So tell me then how you discovered the core approach. You were actually the one who introduced it to (laughs) me. (laughs) So I've known Rob, the author, for years, probably since probably a decade now. And we just met through conferences and and that kind of thing, just connected with how each other thought, had a couple of mutual friends that sort of introduced us as well. We eventually did a couple of projects together, one of which incorporated a couple of the authors from this paper, so James and, and Amelia as well, called Rome, which was Reclaiming Occupation as Means, in which we set up or helped set up, because we live at, so all four of us kind of lives at opposite ends of the country. So we were setting up communities of practice that were kind of like peer support for reclaiming occupation best practice within our areas wherever we worked. So in that kind of spread and there was a few of those groups run throughout Australia in different areas and run by us and run by a couple other people who jumped on board as well so we've just stayed in touch and talk all the time Rob made a move into mental health not long ago and I I helped him through some of that transition and yeah we've just been friends for a long time and then he he brought out the core approach based off his, his PhD work and yeah that's how I got introduced to it really hmm Before we talk about the paper, I want to ask just about this need for an occupation-centered approach. And you just mentioned that you were part of this reclaiming occupation-centered practice in Australia. Do you feel like that is something that is really needed in occupational therapy? I think I have a little bit of mixed feelings because I'm like, at least here in the state, I do think we are becoming more occupation-centered, even in the 10 years since I've been in OT. But yeah, what do you think about the need for an approach like this? Yeah, I think it's massively important. I do think, so when we first started Rome, that was eight years ago, it was definitely a long way from where it is now. Like I think there's been massive moves towards that already in that short Mm -hmm. period. It's obviously going to differ by country. It's also going to differ by area. Like there's some areas in Australia, like work areas in Australia that were probably extremely occupation-based the whole time, which is Mm -hmm. awesome. But there was a lot, including a lot of the state-funded health services here, were very deficit-based and not really occupation-based at all or occupation-focused or anything to do with occupation. There was a lot of gap-filling roles, which is a concept that's been published uh, quite extensively in Australia and a lot of people just were going along with it because they didn't sort of realise that they had a choice and that they could actually advocate for their own role to be 
more in line with the values of the profession. And that's why we started it. And it's something that I've always been passionate about. There's a paper by Matthew Molinow called Standing Firm on Shifting Sands from 2011 that probably is one of the seminal papers in how I think as an OT. It absolutely changed how I view everything in terms of where the profession's going and what the profession should be doing in terms of our core values. That being occupation is the one thing and using occupation as means specifically is the one thing that differentiates us from every other health profession because mm-hmm. and so why would we give that up because then we're just another generalist health service person if we're not doing that. So definitely in Australia at that point in time, it was something that I was sort of stuck in that rut. I was feeling very lost and then found that I wasn't really practising occupation the way it was meant to be. So it was, yeah, something that I kind of latched onto and and then through that obviously met Rob and met a heap of other people and found out that, hey, there's a lot of people going through this and a lot of people feeling the same way I am. So, yeah, definitely at that time where I was, it was definitely an issue. But I do feel, like you said, that we're definitely moving in the right direction and I feel like the subsequent generations of OTs that have come through in that time are coming out in a much better equipped to handle mm-hmm. those challenges and to be able to actually maintain their occupation-ness to coin mm-hmm. a term. So, yeah. yeah. Do you guys use any other words for the word occupation? That's something that I always struggle with in my writing. I don't know. Just I think because other people and health professionals don't use that word as much, I always wonder if that's the word we need to cling to or if there's other words people use to describe that. I don't. I, I, like, I've heard all the arguments about, oh, we should change it because no one understands it. I'm like, no one understands it because we don't talk about it. Like, it's yeah. really that simple. Occupation, the way we use it, has been used that way long before it was ever used as a term of, like, say, profession or that kind of thing. Yeah. We're using it because it's occupying someone's time. And that's the really basic explanation. And I've always found, even with other health professionals, like I've had doctors talk to me about, you know, a person's occupational needs and use it correctly just because I spent the time to actually teach them. Same way that I can go into a wardroom and talk about medications and, you know, side effects. I didn't come out with that knowledge. It's something that I picked up from interacting with other professions and learning off other professions. I think it's the same thing. We just need to do a bit more give and not just take in terms of who's learning what off who. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I've never, I mean, I've, like I said, I've heard all the arguments, but in my experience, uh, it's never been an issue and I enjoy talking. So I guess that also yeah. helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is a really rich word and writing like this just reminds me of the richness behind it. And I do think there's so much to be proud of in being occupation-based and papers like this just get me really excited about it again. So thinking specifically of the article that we read, I was wondering just about your general impressions of it, what your takeaways were from it. I think this article in particular, obviously, like I've had a lot of discussions with Rob and some of the other participants in this article prior to the article, but I think the general layout of the core approach and the general layout of this particular article really aligned with how I was working clinically before I moved, obviously, before I moved into the uni. For me, it was like, it just makes sense because even some of the questions, like that's how I was operating within a mental health space prior I just have never had like 
a framework mm-hmm. or I guess that it's not 100% of a structure, like it is more of a guide, but I never had that. I was just operating off sort of like I know that, you know, occupations are based on our value set and all that sort of thing. So if I need to find or help someone fill a, a gap in their occupational needs, I need to kind of try and align those with, you know, what they value. So to me, a lot of it was something I'd already been doing, which I do recognise at that point in time was quite different to how a lot of OTs were practising even in my space. But to me, it was like, finally, someone's saying or putting into words what I'm doing and thinking. So Mm -hmm. to me, it was almost like a a bit of a relief (laughs) in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like it was really intuitive, just like you said, like it just clicked into place things we've been thinking about already. And then I love how he had these four areas and then broke them down into like practical questions we can ask ourselves or ask our clients. I kind of want to talk about the four areas specifically. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The capabilities area, was that a word that resonated with you? Was that a word you were using already? Or was that giving new language to a way you were thinking about things already? So it wasn't a word I was using specifically. I think I was thinking about it in a way that probably did encompass that, but I wasn't using that terminology in talking with Rob about it. Like I can definitely understand where that's come from and for him highlighting the space in which it was actually developed. Obviously, he was doing this through his PhD, but it was also at a time when that particular terminology was being used in the Australian political space, when there was a lot of restructure around different health policies and that kind of thing. But the explaining it where the actual terminology came from when I was talking to him, it made so much sense. Like it actually comes from sort of economics in that it's looking at opportunities and the fact that, say, people who are in sort of struggling economically, you don't fix it by, you know, throwing money at them. You fix it by increasing their capability, so increasing their opportunity, so, you know, increasing jobs, increasing that sort of stuff, and then they can sort of help themselves. And it's a lot of the explanation, even though it comes from economics, and apparently the person who actually sort of coined the term or used it in that way in economics actually won a Nobel Prize for economics for that particular work. So it's obviously well-recognised in that field. And all Rob's really done is pulled that into OT and gone, hey, like this really resonates with a health audience as well in that, you know, if someone's starving, you can throw food at them. It's not going to fix the actual problem. Yeah, it's going to fix some of the acute symptoms, but it's not going to fix the problem. Once that food runs out, it's still going to be starving. If someone's going through hardship, so looking at it from say, a mental health point of view, if someone's depressed, if someone's anxious, you can say throw medication at them. And yeah, that might fix some of the acute symptoms. It's not going to fix the underlying cause. It's not going to fix that root cause. Whereas if we're able to increase their occupational opportunities, and this is something that I've been going on about for so long in my own podcast, in my own practice, we don't have to focus on the acute symptoms. If we're able to fix those underlying issues, increase occupational opportunities, increase occupational engagement, et cetera, those things work themselves out. We are able to fix it by looking at the root cause as opposed to trying to suppress the symptoms. So when he explained that where that came from and that he was simply applying 
knowledge from a completely different field. Like not many mm-hmm. people would sort of align economics with OT, which is I think one of that that sums Rob up in an absolute nutshell on terms of being able to pull from other fields and apply it to occupational therapy. It just made so much sense. So, and like I can see that there might be some confusion around the word, uh, and maybe there might need to be some sort of like this podcast, some education yeah. around its use. But I feel like once it was explained to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's that's the word. Like that makes sense to encompass yeah. that theory. I think if you change the word, you don't. It's not paying homage, but it's kind of like you lose some of the essence of that, where all of that came from, all that background knowledge. So I think applying it, using that particular phrase or that word, and and it fits, like we're Mm -hmm. increasing someone's capabilities. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I really like the word. It's actually come up on the podcast before. And back to talking about occupation, I think capabilities might be a word just like occupation where like that is the best word. It may not be commonly used, and that means that we need to talk about it more. And I think there's so much for OT to be proud of in that it does connect to, like you said, this economic thinking and this philosophy. I actually bought Martha Nussbaum's book. I think it's called Creating Capabilities. You should read it. I just read the beginning, and I I was like, I feel like I'm reading an OT book. (laughs) It just fits so well with our professional lens. And I think that we should just be really proud of that, that leading philosophers and economic thinkers are thinking like OTs. Like, I mean, if you really, I mean, I'm going to be very generalized here, but it kind of makes sense because if you're looking at economics and how people spend money and how people use resources and that kind of stuff, that's, well, again, all based on values and collective values and all that stuff, the same as occupations are. It's obviously a very different area, but fundamentally, psychologically, how those things operate, there's probably some really, a lot of similarities, I would say. Mm-hmm. So at that sort of very base level, fundamental level, there's probably more similarities than we give it credit for, but just because it's such a different field, I mean, I've never thought, hey, I'm going to go and have a look in economics and see what those theories can teach us. Yeah. But uh, I think there's probably a lot more similarities even than what we've highlighted so far if we were to delve into it. And I think it, again, highlights the value, and I think OTs are absolutely terrible at this, of pulling information from other fields and and being able to use ourselves. We are intent on reinventing the wheel in a lot of cases. So I think Mm -hmm. it's a really good lesson in, in that, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, and the next three categories, opportunities, resources, environments. To me, as OTs, lots of times we spend our time in that like capabilities area. And I love that this theory pushes us to these other three areas more to be more almost like systems thinkers, like Hmm. what's going on big picture, both in the local environment, but also like big picture opportunities and to ask that question with each client, I think is really powerful. And I feel like that's one of the strengths and one of the things I really liked about it when I first came across it was, it seems like a kind of framework that I could use this with an individual or I could use this with community development. Like it's it's broad enough and encompasses these concepts rather than sort of, and one of the things Rob said to me is it's, he stressed this a lot, is it's not a model. So it's not like 
very structured, standardized against, you know, a certain population, et cetera. It's not going to play out the same every time you use it with different people or different populations. It's more of a guiding framework and a way of viewing situations, people, communities, et cetera, that will help explain and help you work and develop with them in partnership with them. But like I said, it's something that I could use developing a health service if I needed Mm -hmm. to. I could use it with an individual if I needed to. I could use it with a family or like you could use it with any size population really as well. Technically, you could use this with a country if you really wanted to. I don't know how that would go down, but you you technically could use the framework for viewing a certain situation in that way and breaking it down so it actually makes sense. And then looking at, okay, so where do we need to put the effort or where do we want to build? What do we want to focus on first? So I really like it for that. And to me, when you've got something that is that versatile, to me that's the sign of a, something that I think demands more of my attention and something that I'm actually going to look into is when mm-hmm. I can see that it's got more than like a single purpose, like some you know assessments that we have in this yeah. profession are very narrow, I guess you would say. Yeah. So when you're thinking about using this approach in clinical practice, if you can like transport yourself maybe to a mental health setting and you're working with an individual, do you see using this approach as like a checklist in your head where you're like thinking through the four categories or do you see it as you're asking the client these questions how do you see the approach being used just like on a really practical clinical level or do you have any stories about that to share with us? Yeah. So I think for me, it's probably easier because like I said, at the start, it it fit very well with how I was practicing anyway. And I was using Mm -hmm. a range of different tools to essentially gather exactly that kind of information from people that I was working with. So to me, it was like, hey, I can do that. That's easy. I can. That's what I'm doing. I know how to do that. And I've got other tools. So obviously, he provided some guiding questions that people could use to, you know, start the conversation about the four different areas. I was using different tools. And that's one of the beauties of it is it can be called like it's not a standalone thing. It's designed to be more of an overall frame of reference, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use other tools to elicit the information around that. So... In my practice, I was working on, you work on the basic theory that for most people, for everyone, the basic psychological assumption that humans want to live to their values. When we do things that are outside of our value system, it creates internal conflict. Generally, you'll see a lot of mental health issues arise from that, whether it's anxiety or grief or whatever it is. So for the most part, people are going to lean towards doing things that fit within their value system. So for us, when looking at what people do, it's kind of important that we know what they value. So Mm -hmm. when there's some sort of illness, injury, whether that's psychological, physical, et cetera, that disrupts what they're doing and we need to either find a substitute for that particular occupation or find something completely new that they want to try to try and fill that need, that psychological need, we need to know what they value so that we're not just trying to slot any old occupation, which I think traditionally is probably a bad habit of the profession dating back to the 50s and trying to just mm-hmm. replace anything with anything. So a lot of like I've done a lot of values assessments, whether they're really sort of informal 
using like values cards on a table and trying to mm. find out, okay, so what appeals to you? And then a lot of narrative exploration in how I operate with mental health. So Kawa was a really good one for, for using mm-hmm. in that space. Finding out what they do, but more importantly, finding out why. There was also a tool from the University of Canterbury called, I can't remember what it was called, but essentially it was looking at some of the external barriers to occupational engagement. So it was looking at very much part of the environmental stuff, but also it highlighted a lot of the opportunities. So, but it looked at it on different levels. So there was a sort of internal levels, whether it was your value system, right up to sort of national policy levels. So the example when I was using it in Australia back then, same-sex marriage wasn't legally recognised. So I used to use that as the example of, so if you got all the way back out to there and the one thing that was stopping you from engaging in that was national policy, then that's where that kind of example would fit. Obviously, thank Mm -hmm. God we've caught up with, you know, sanity and that's all legalised now. But Mm -hmm. So that was another tool. I used to use uh, solution-focused brief intervention, uh, which is, again, a tool that we borrowed from social work originally but fits really well with occupation-based practice to look at things like the resources. And resources are something that's been looked at in mental health for moons now on terms of we look at contextual factors that people could utilise, kind of like a strength-based approach, I guess, for what can you utilise if we need to, similar to your driftwood for Kawa, like what can we leverage that you've already got access to, that you already use, et cetera, that we can use to get you to that next step. And then almost the opportunities would come sort of towards the end where, okay, we've got all this information, you want to get to Mm. here, but we don't have that opportunity. How can we advocate or change something or move something around so that you actually have the opportunities and looking at occupational opportunities was kind of that last step in my practice or fitting that into my practice that then made me feel when I found the core approach, I'm like, okay, yeah, I am doing that. So that focus on occupational opportunities obviously fits really well with concepts like occupational justice and that kind of thing, which, again, was something I was really probably just learning at that time, you know, six or seven years ago whenever yeah. it was. So from a practical level, I wouldn't use it as a checklist. And again, like the questions that are provided are more of a guide. Speaking to Rob, he did say that he's just published, I think it's a book chapter that actually has like an extended list of questions. So like he's probably more prompts out there. But again, they're just a guide. Like I said, I've used completely different tools that could fit and would still fit within me sort of operating under a core approach. But it's, yeah, it's more of a, I guess the framework on how to think. So, yeah, probably just mm-hmm. making sure that I was looking at all of those different areas. But for my particular practice, I couldn't really just look at one of those areas yeah. anyway. So it just kind of came natural to look at all of those areas. But I think especially for people that are operating maybe not in the most occupation sort of centred-based framed way and are looking at changing their practice or are just sort of starting out in the profession or just want some sort of guidance on how to, I guess, think like an OT, I think that's where this really, really will shine as a a concept. Mm -hmm. There's two things you said I want to follow up on. The first is how you said that opportunities is usually kind of the last thing that you're thinking about. 
And the whole time I was reading about it, the opportunities thing was kind of bugging me because I kept thinking about the resource and environment as like the building blocks of opportunities. And I love, like you said, thinking about that as like the last thing. I also want to change the acronym to C-E-R-O, like, because just where it was placed was kind of, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well. But yeah, I, I see thinking about those first three things is like building blocks towards opportunities that I feel like was like kind of like a missing piece for me. Yeah. And I, I, like you said before, I don't think it's designed that you have to like do things in a specific order. It's yes, more of yeah. an overall thing. Yeah. So yeah, um, opportunities, occupational opportunities was something I kind of, I guess, added into my clinical repertoire more as I was reading into and learning about occupational justice. Yeah. Probably where I sort of, I learned more about that part of it. But, yeah, like you can yeah, slot it in where it fits. Like it's going to be different for every client. Like for some people, they may come to you with the actual issue that they're coming to you with is an occupational opportunity issue. So you start there. Like you kind of play it by ear with each client. And But as long mm-hmm. as you're sort of touching base, obviously then you would work back and go, okay, so what's causing this? You know, is it the capabilities that you've got? Is it your your lack of resources or inability to access those resources? Is there something about your environment, whether that's social, political, institutional, whatever it is, all the different types of environment that we look at? What is actually restricting those opportunities? So, yeah, it'll depend on the client. to sort of, I guess, the order that you do it in. I often don't use them as sort of distinct things. I won't go, okay, I'm going to look at the capabilities now and I'm going to go on to look at the resources. Like in those conversations, like particularly some of the narrative exploration stuff, which tends to be quite rich information when you're having those conversations with clients. I'll be doing, say, a values exercise like the cards that I described earlier. And, you know, you're going to gather information from that about what resources they've got about. Yes, you might not get all of the information, but it's enough to start that conversation and explore that during that process. So it does kind of, on terms of a practical thing, it kind of melds. It's just more about this is the kind of information that you're looking for in order to best support the people that you work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All four areas are so interconnected. And yeah. I really liked how you talked about that. I also when you were talking earlier about like all the tools you use just connected to like values, I was thinking yes. about that question specifically kind of as an example of all the areas, but like the idea of trying to figure out a client's values, it's not as easy as being like, what do you value? You know, <laughs> We're trying to figure out information that lots of times our clients may not have the language for, or if they're experiencing a new health condition, they're like, we're looking at valuing things that maybe they've taken for granted before. They've never had to mm-hmm. think about how they value their everyday practice. And I love that Rob's doing like an extended questions list for us and thinking about we need to be pulling in all of our tools and all of our skills as therapists to be finding out those answers because, yeah, those are hard answers to find. And, but yeah, that's the core of what we're looking for as therapists is no pun intended. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have been tempted to use the word, the pun core, a lot in writing about this. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. Like, if I went up to anyone and said, like, what are your core values? Like, most people can't answer that. Like, they don't have yeah. the 
the skill, they don't have the capabilities to be able to answer that usually. Yeah. So that's where I find, and that's with anything that someone might struggle, like you said, like new diagnosis, new life situations, that kind of stuff, big shifts that people tend to struggle to adjust with. For me, I've always found that some kind of visual medium helps people process them. That's why I like mm -hmm. using like cards or like the car wire works really well for that kind of stuff because it's something that we can then use different sensors to help process it. We can see it, we can draw it, we can yeah. so it's a bit of tactile, a bit of that sort of stuff. And it's not just ruminating in your head trying to get the information out. So I like visual tools, particularly for that sort of stuff. It's probably the one question I would like to see broken down a little bit more because you can find a lot of that information when you get really good with sort of even just basic interviewing skills. You can get that information from an interview. But in doing so, I probably never even mentioned the word values, but I can yeah. work out what people value based on patterns of occupation, really. So the basic pattern that I look for is based on our values, that creates an occupational need for us psychologically. And we fill that need with whatever occupation we have the opportunity and the access to at the time. We know that once you sort of mid-20s age-wise, that's when our value system really sort of concretes down. It doesn't do much changing aside from sort of trauma, which is probably the main thing that will change it after that. So if we have an injury or illness that stops us from doing, you know, X, Y, Z occupations, then if I can work out what needs those occupations were filling, which again, we know is based on that person's value system, then I'm going to have a much better idea of what we can fill it with or how we can adjust in order to make sure that those needs are filled. Unmet needs, I always call it a vacuum, but unmet needs creates psychological distress, which, you know, in turn, long-term can present as mental illness or, or, you know, relationship breakdown or behavioural issues or all sorts of things. So that's the sort of basic process that I, I operate with on regards to values. So you can find yeah. that out from narrative exploration, but like I said, a lot of those sort of really big thinking things, I find visual tools to be a really useful thing for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask too about the article talks a lot about social inclusion is kind of like the other pillar, like this approach is occupation centric and it also promotes social inclusion, which again goes along with a lot of what we've been reading and talking about on the podcast is ideas of belonging as another core goal of occupation that we're talking about more and more. And I wanted to ask you how you see occupation-centric practice and social inclusion going hand-in-hand? Hand. That's kind of a hard question. No, 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 it makes sense. It makes sense. Okay. I, I think a lot of people, when they conceptualize occupation, think about it too narrow. I feel like they get stuck on the doing, and they mm -hmm. just think the occupation is the doing, whereas... Yeah. You know, people can engage in, say, an example I used to hear from a, a lecturer and a mentor of mine was like an old man reminiscing about good times in the past. Like technically he's not doing anything, but he's still engaged in an occupation. He might be just engaged in his being. He's reminiscing about who he is and his life and all the events that led up to that. And that's something that is really important to that particular individual. So I, I think... The old doing, being, becoming, belonging, when we're looking at occupation-based, occupation-focused, whatever we're looking at, we need to be able to look 
beyond just the doing in order to actually get a very well-rounded treatment approach for the people that we work with, particularly in, in mental health where the illnesses or injuries aren't sort of visible. Then quite often, the, if we're only looking at what the person's doing, we're missing some of the most important stuff that people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, I, I feel like that's partly come just probably through that very reductionist phase that the profession went to coming out of World War II right up until probably mid to late 80s. I feel like that's where that kind of mindset around what occupation is kind of came from because it very much through that whole period, it was very much pulling everything apart and just focusing on the doing and how we could re-enable the doing and it was all about doing and Mm -hmm. I think we kind of lost our way a little bit. But then, you know, theorists like Ann Wilcock came up with theories that helped sort of try and open our eyes to, hey, like, look, we've forgotten this. There's more to it than just the actual actions and the tasks mm-hmm. and the activities that people do. So I, I think on terms of your question, I think it's just a matter of getting back to the roots of what is occupation, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you were saying that, I'm like thinking back to the question I asked earlier where I was like, do we even need another occupation-centered theory? Because I think from what I see here in the U.S., we are better at using occupation and there is this push towards function, but we're not thinking about occupation as broadly as you're talking about it. Like we are focused on the doing, but the being and the belonging, we do have a lot of room for growth there. And I like how this theory helps push that and helps us think in this like much broader, more holistic level. Yeah, and I, I think that's the level. Obviously, the very sort of Western medical model is all about doing, and it's all about well, if you've got a yeah. symptom, we get rid of the symptom, and then that should restore everything. And I feel like a, with a lot of these more contemporary theories around the profession, we're really just coming full circle because this is where the profession started, then we went away from it, and now we're sort of moving back to it with a much more scientific underpinning and a much more understanding of why we're doing things rather than Mm -hmm. just, oh, if we do this, it works. But I feel like this is a way of thinking, a way of practicing that. I know I've talked to a lot of people that work in sort of physical realms of OT with like rehab and injury rehab and all that sort of stuff. And I've heard the concerns they have about, you know, moving away from the doing because that's their core business. You mm-hmm. know, someone can't do something. Okay, that's cool. But Eric Johnson, a friend of mine from the States, said to me, and I've never forgot this, is that there's no health without mental health. And if you are not looking at even in those very physically oriented practice areas, if we're not looking at the person as a whole person and we're just looking at them as a cluster of functional systems that allow interaction with an environment, which is all the doing is, then we're not doing them the full service that occupational therapy can provide. We're not using the profession to its amazing and unique value Mm -hmm. for the benefit of that individual. So technically, we're doing them a disservice by not looking at the breadth of what we can actually offer for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Obviously, obviously, I'm not discounting the fact that there is a massive amount of systemic barriers 
that may come to actually doing that, but still that's something we need to work on for the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're a hand therapist and Hmm. in a very focused area that is focused on that physical health of that hand, you can still be thinking in these broad terms and I can just see that benefiting our patients so much. I wanted to ask too, kind of as my final big hard question, (laughs) where would you like to see the core approach go in the future? How would you like to see it evolve? If maybe Rob listens to this podcast, what what do you hope he hears? So the actual approach, I think, obviously, it's very early on for the, mm-hmm. the core approach. It is very new, especially on terms of some of the other approaches that the profession's been using for forever. I think the next stage for it is is looking at it, like we've been discussing, in that more practical how it works in different practice areas and then obviously hopefully adding to the evidence base about hey this is how it works in this practice or this is how I've used it in this practice area so it's similar to there was a call a few years ago with regards to occupational science in that it needed to stop being so theoretical and start looking at how it's applied in different areas I think that's the next step for the core approach as well We've got the theory, the theory's there, the theory seems very sound. It's now to actually put that soundness of the theory to the test and actually start applying it to different practice areas. And hopefully the people that are doing that are willing to write it up and actually add to the evidence base. I know Rob mentioned to me the other day that he is working with a number of people in different practice areas. And I know he's seen it used in in pediatrics and in mental health and a few other areas as well. And I know he's always keen to to try and support people to try it out and and see how it fits and see what they might want to do. It's like anything, it's kind of like in that R&D phase now where you kind of test it and Mm -hmm. then down the track if something needs to be added or reworked, then we know because it's been tested in the field kind of thing. So I think that's the next stage for it. Yeah, it's such an exciting approach to follow because I feel like we're getting to see it evolve in real time. And as you're following it, you just get to see how these theories do have a fluidness to them and are responding to the needs out there. And it's just fun to watch it develop from paper to paper. I can't believe it. We're already really close to the end of our hour. And I really wanted to ask you a couple rapid fire questions. Do you feel up for that? Let's okay. get How do you usually describe occupational therapy to someone? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> on the spot. I start with, you thought you'd finished asking hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so my description, I usually explain occupation. You know, mm. occupational therapists, our unique domain is we work with the things that occupy your time. Generally, what I've found is that people who struggle to understand occupation because people give them practice examples and I try to avoid that if I can Mm. rather than I explain what an OT is as opposed to what an OT does see there we go we're getting away from the doing again even (laughs) so yeah I found like if I explain and particularly with that that example if I explain you know that OTs we work with the things that occupy your time and then I can move into examples from that individual you know whether that's going to work or playing with your kids or whatever it is Because what I have seen in the past is someone may have interaction with an OT, say, through their kids, like peds OT, and they'll go, okay, so OTs, you know, they do this and that. And then, you know, their grandparent or their parent will see an OT and they're like, oh, wait a minute, that person's not 
got grandma in the ball pit or on a swing or something. It's yeah. like it gets very confusing if you just look at practice examples. So if I can give an mm-hmm. example of what an OT is as opposed to what an OT does, I feel like that's a bit more universal. That's awesome. How do you hope a OT client feels after their first visit with an OT? Heard. Mm. I'll say that a lot of the interactions I have with clients through my practice have always highlighted the fact that quite often, not necessarily just with OTs, but with a lot of professions, they don't feel like the person's actually listening to what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And it's that you know, every profession comes with their own agenda and their own way of dealing with things. But I, I, I've always wanted the person to feel like, hey, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm on your team, whatever you want to work on, we'll work on. So, yeah, I, I think heard would be the probably the one of the most important things. Yeah, that's amazing because to me that like syncs up this whole conversation because I like the core approach where it has these reflexive questions that puts us in this listening mm. posture. And sometimes I think as OTs, we forget to get into that listening posture. We, we have so much we want to do. Yes. Yeah, we get stuck in the very prescriptive kind of need to fix the problem, need to fix the problem mindset, yep. which is, you know, that's that's Western medical model. So. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any final thoughts or takeaways? One of the important things that, and I've spoken about this with a few people recently, and I think this is where this particular, like not just this episode, but your podcast in general is really good for it, is that sometimes there is difficulty in some of this research actually getting out to people. Mm -hmm. There's a very limited scope for journal articles to actually reach people nowadays Mm -hmm. and it can be quite expensive for some of the authors and that sort of stuff so I think podcasts like this are a really good opportunity to start a learning journey and like introduce people to a concept and that kind of thing and so a massive thank you to you for putting this together like the whole podcast together because I've learned so much off the different articles that you Mm -hmm. get into and do deep dives on and pull apart and I think it's fantastic but I think for other people too like don't just leave it at the podcast like the podcast is an awesome introduction and it gives yours and like someone else's opinion on a paper but see if you can go out and find the paper and have a read and and come up with your own opinion, see how it would fit into your practice. And then mm-hmm. through your your membership site, like engage in the discussions with others. Like you'll learn more off other people than you ever will just reading the article. But if you can do mm-hmm. both, then you're going to maximise your opportunity to, to get the most out of it. So, yeah, that's probably my, my final thought just because it ties in with something that I've been discussing with a few people this week. Yeah. Oh, well, Brock, this was so fun. And this discussion did really help bring this article to life for me more. And there's so much to chew on, like you said. And I know I'll be thinking about it for a while. And I'll also be thinking about that sock puppet that introduced you to OT. <laughs> if I find the photo, I'll send you the photo. Of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you. And hopefully we get to talk again sometime on the podcast. Can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, I just had so much fun talking to Brock today. He just always pushes me to think big picture and to just expand my thinking about our profession. I think you could probably just hear that happening in the episode today. And like I said at the beginning, some of this can feel really theoretical, but how we conceptualize OT and how we think about it just informs 
so much how we show up for our, our patients. And I love the push that the core approach gives us. We will be discussing both this article and the podcast in the OT Potential Club. I'm hoping that maybe even the founder of the core approach, Robert Pereira, will join us in there. So I hope you guys feel like this will be a place where you can ask questions, provide pushback, talk about what you want to see from the approach in the future. The OT Potential Club is also where you'll go to earn a certificate for your time today. Like I said at the beginning, you just have to take that five question test to earn your one hour of CEU credits. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.